James chapter 3, 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Father, as we go to your word, we ask that you will open it to us and open us to it by the power of your spirit. Amen. Well, the founding prayer of this church is from Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And one way that the Lord has clearly been building this house, this community of worship, is by giving us the book of James in this time when we needed it and we didn't even know. Apparently God knew, and we praise him for his goodness to us in that. So we're committed here to preaching through the Bible in an expository way, because if I decided week to week, month to month, however often we do sermon series, if I said, well, here's four or five things I think the people of Christ Church need to hear, I'd be shortchanging you because I am not God and I am not omniscient. So if we take God's word to us and we work through it in a way that honors him carefully and we receive his word, he's going to pull out a thousand things that he knows we need and we didn't know. We couldn't even articulate. And he's been faithful to do that for us in this series. So preaching and hearing and receiving the word of God, these are acts of faith. We're putting ourselves in his hands and asking him to show us what matters instead of us relying on our emphases. So to give a, a brief overview of where we've been, this is kind of a high level view of what the Lord has been teaching us in this series through James so far. So first of all, in chapter one, he taught us to be joyful in trials and to ask God for wisdom because he's generous and gives to all without reproach. We learned to, be, um, to not be deceived about the goodness of God and to be a hearer and a doer of the word. In chapter two, we learned to not show partiality and we learned to show our faith by good works. And so far in chapter three, we're learning to control our tongues, maybe the most challenging one yet. And now we're learning from the second half of chapter three to live out the wisdom that comes from God. That's what this passage is about, is the wisdom from above. But let's be clear that wisdom isn't actually the ultimate goal here, right? Wisdom in and of itself is kind of pointless. Wisdom has to do something. God doesn't just want us to be a community of smart people. He wants to shape us into a community of peace. Peace is actually the theme of this passage. Wisdom is the way we get to the peace. James has been showing us from the beginning that if we receive something from God, then what we receive 
if we've really received it, must bear fruit in our lives, right? If we hear the word, we must also do the word. If you've received mercy, then you must show mercy. If you receive the implanted word, then you must speak differently with your tongue. And now as he starts talking about wisdom, he continues to insist that if we've received something from God, we have to demonstrate it. We got to live it out. We got to give it legs. So um, some of you may know that I'm kind of a fan of minimalist footwear. So all the shoes that I wear are, um, yeah, there are a few of us, um, <laughs> few of us here. So all, I like to wear a walking and, and running in shoes that have very little padding, no padding and no structure, no support. Um, and we barefoot shoes or minimalist shoes. And years ago, Nike, who's the proponent of course, big, chunky, very structured padded shoes, Nike sponsored this team that, of runners that was training for the Olympics. And so as part of the sponsorship, they sent them loads of the most expensive athletic shoes you can buy. Now, one day a rep from the company goes out to watch the practice and he's dismayed to see that all of the runners are training barefoot. <laughs> so this team training for the Olympics believed in minimalist footwear and they put their trust in the human foot instead of in Nike's big old padded shoes. And they just laced up their Nikes for race day because they had to, because they were the sponsor. So the rep saw this and he goes up to the, the, the coach and he's kind of bewildered and he's kind of angry. And he says, are we not sending you enough shoes? Like, where are all these incredibly expensive shoes? Are they wearing out too quickly? You can imagine how that Nike rep felt. We sent you the gift why on earth aren't you using it? In James 1, two chapters earlier, we were told that if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And later, James says that every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So if God were to visit this church during a practice run, I wonder if he would catch us barefoot. Would he say, why aren't you using the gifts I've given you? The passage that we're working through today has three distinct sections. So here's what we're going to, to do with our three main headers. Uh, one, wisdom will out. Right, you know the saying, truth will out. If there's wisdom, you'll know it. Wisdom will out. Two, wisdom from below. And three, the wisdom from above. So let's just dive into number one. Wisdom will out. This is from verse 13. And chapter three, if you'll remember back to last week, it began, if I can paraphrase, by James saying, you want to be a teacher? Well, here's what you need to know. Remember, he literally says, not many of you should be teachers, my brothers. So do you want to be a teacher? Here's what you need to know about the tongue. And now he continues by saying, do you want to be wise? Do you want to be a sage? Well, here's what you need to know. James 3.13, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And here's how Eugene Peterson paraphrased this verse in the message. He says, do you want to be counted wise to build a reputation for wisdom? Here's what you do. Live well, live wisely, live humbly. It's the way you live, not the way you talk, that counts. I've known um, a few amateur, more than a few amateur mechanics 
over the years. They're tinkerers who are always willing to come help swap out an alternator or fix a timing belt issue. And these guys are gearheads, and they're always talking with very technical jargon about all the sort of, I don't know, bits of a car. <laughs> but how do you know if they're a good one? How do you know if they're good at what they do? Well, you got to look at their car, right? How many of these friends that I've known over the years, you ask them for help and they putter up in an old, you know, rundown Chevette that's barely held together with duct tape. And you're thinking, well, if you can't fix your car, right, how are you going to fix mine? Or you could be like my friend Brady, who um, actually comes to the other church that meets here in the evenings. And he pulls up in the most meticulously kept up, well-restored, beautiful old cars, because he knows what he's doing. And that's the mechanic to trust. So remember that James told us in chapter one to ask God for wisdom if you lack it, because he gives generously without chiding. But God doesn't give us that gift of wisdom to put it on the shelf as a conversation piece the next time we have folks over for a game night. He gives us wisdom for us to live. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So do you, do you want to learn to control your tongue, for instance, from last week? Well, you have to receive the wisdom from above and then lace up your shoes and do it. For, for James, he thinks of wisdom and heart as almost synonymous. So if you've been given a new heart, then your tongue has a new source, like we talked about last week. And can bitter water come from a fresh spring? So look at the last few words of verse 13. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. The meekness of wisdom. Let's not confuse meekness with weakness. And I'm not saying that to be trite. It's because it happens a lot. We think someone who's meek is docile or weak. But that's not what this word means. Jesus uses this same word to describe himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, the same word for meek, and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, if you have gone to Christ and found rest, then you know that for you to get rest requires incredible strength from him. Meekness is not weakness. So what is it? Well, I don't know. Have you ever seen horses stampede or like a video of wild horses just going nuts? It's a wild surge of raw, uncontrolled strength undirected, unharnessed. And anything that gets in the way of this stampede is trampled and destroyed. And it's a lot like our tongues, like we talked about last week, those restless evils full of deadly poison. Uncontrolled, it does a lot of damage. But conversely, have you ever seen a crazy wild horse broken or tamed? A powerful horse under the control of its master isn't docile. All that strength that would surge in the stampede is harnessed and channeled into something good, into something useful, and that's meekness. That's precisely what James is gesturing toward. That, that word for meek or meekness was actually used historically in Greek literature to talk about the breaking of a horse. That's the idea, is its strength under control. Meekness is strength controlled. 
harnessed, channeled. Uh, So let's not confuse meekness with weakness, but let's also not confuse breaking a horse with domesticating an animal. Um, So remember earlier in the chapter, James said that humans have tamed all kinds of creatures, but no human can tame the tongue. And so you you might think that the, the word then for meekness and tame is the same, but it's not. He's drawing two different words on purpose. To break a horse is to harness the strength and power and channel it into something good and useful, but to tame or to domesticate an animal means to squelch its natural strength, quiet it down, still it, make it stop, right? So many of you have met our dog, Greyfriar. Um, if you haven't, Yes, his name is Greyfriar, and I know that's weird. We call him Gray. Um, now, if Greyfriar, and he's still a puppy, and sometimes he bolts out the door, and he thinks, I'm a wild dog. So if Greyfriar were a wild dog, undomesticated, I know exactly what he'd be doing. He'd be chasing every squirrel like a personal squeaky toy. He'd be eating raw meat that he finds lying around on the side of the road. I mean, he'd be insane, right? And barking at everything, <laughs> but we don't want a wild gray fryer. We want a domesticated one that doesn't bark when Mr. Norm comes over for dinner, that doesn't chase the squirrels out the door, right? That doesn't eat the mole in the front yard. We want to domesticate him, which means to to squelch down those impulses and make him stop. That makes a good dog, right? That's not what God does for us. That's taming. It doesn't make meekness. Instead, the wisdom from above, when we receive wisdom from God, he breaks us like a horse so that we're meek, not tame. Strength harnessed and controlled. So how can we summarize James's point so far in verse 13? Here's what I would say. If you have received wisdom from God, you must demonstrate it by harnessing your God-given strength and maturity and channeling it into good works. That's what wisdom from above does. And it's interesting that James doesn't go into what those good works are because we all know. (laughs) It's not difficult to know what to do. What's difficult is to know how to do it, in what way to do it. And he gets from that later. But let's move to number two, wisdom from below. Now, James incidentally doesn't actually call it wisdom. He's careful to not use the word wisdom. So we might think of it as the false wisdom from below. This is in three, chapter three, verses 14 through 16. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. A couple weeks ago, we looked at James 2 and the posture of mercy. If you were here, you might remember, probably not, but you might, that, you know, mercy moves towards someone with an open hand to give. And partiality moves towards someone with grabbing hands to take for me. I'll give, but it's only to receive something for myself. And now James is coming back to that exact same idea, but he's applying it to wisdom. So that, that false wisdom that's earthly, unspiritual, demonic is tilted toward me. 
False wisdom is oriented to me. Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. James repeats these things at the beginning and at the end of this verse because they're, or these two verses, because they're that important. Jealousy, ambition. These are the internal and external ways that we say, what about me? Jealousy says, why can't I have that? And ambition says, I'm going to get that. It's all about what I want. It's about me. And where those two things exist, we know that we are living out of false wisdom from below, earthly, unspiritual, demonic. And we might talk a big game, but if we have jealousy and selfish ambition in our hearts, we're still driving a broken down car while claiming to be a top-notch gearhead. Where there's smoke, there's fire. And if the fruit of this false wisdom from below is jealousy and selfish ambition, the side effects of eating that fruit are disorder and every vile practice. So essentially what James is saying is that we, if we all live out of this place of this false wisdom, if we all serve ourselves, this church will turn into Lord of the Flies. It will be insane. I know some people who call themselves anarchists, but even they have enough sense to know that when you're driving down I-65, there's wisdom in the rules, right? If everyone's out for themselves, operating by their own standards, thinking of themselves primarily, the freeway would just be a big pileup, one epic road rage incident. So you have the Bible's permission. You have God's permission to walk into a church community and to assess based on its fruit and its side effects where it's drawing its wisdom from. This is written to churches, to worshiping communities to say, have you laced up the Nikes? Are you living it? The wisdom from below says the beginning of wisdom is me, myself. And we'll do whatever it takes, every vile practice to get what we want. And the result will be chaos, disorder. The wisdom from above says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And we'll follow our master by dying to self to serve those around us. And the result will be beautiful harmony. And that takes us then to the last point, the wisdom from above. This is verses 17 through 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now you'll notice that James doesn't define wisdom, which I want to do. I would like to give you a, you know, Webster's dictionary definition of what wisdom is so that we can then systematically flesh out our categories. He doesn't do that. He describes what wisdom does. And the whole Bible treats wisdom this way. It has almost an undefinable quality because it's not so much about a doctrine or an idea or a level of intelligence as it is a way of life. It's not as much about what you do as it is how you do. So when Solomon wants to talk about wisdom, he reaches for the fear of the Lord. He says, well, let me tell you where it comes from, what the beginning of the thing is. It's the fear of God. 
And when James wants to talk about wisdom, he says, well, it's first pure, then peaceable and gentle, etc." So it's not a diploma on a wall or a set of ideas. It's just, it's how you are. And wisdom will out. If you are seeking and receiving wisdom from God, you will begin to bear its fruit. So what is the fruit of the wisdom from above? Well, James says that first of all, it's pure. Now, um, the way most, this is called the virtue list. There's vice lists and virtue lists in the New Testament. And it's a common thing in the first and second century uh, in the Greco-Roman world. And the way that most virtue lists work, especially in the New Testament, is the first item on the list is like the header category. And everything else is a subset of that, right? So if you think of the fruit of the spirit and it's fruit singular, because the fruit of the spirit is love, right? And the subset categories of love is joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. I probably left one out. You, you hear what I'm saying? So each of those things is an aspect of the fruit of the spirit, which is love. Similarly, James wants us to know that the fruit of the wisdom from above is pure. It's clean. There's nothing to repent of in this. What a relief. And that purity looks like being peaceable, not causing unnecessary conflict, being gentle, not hot-headed or harsh, being open to reason. In other words, not belligerently standing your ground on things that aren't of first importance and being full of mercy and good fruits, not wielding your tongue against people or being ambitious. And it's like being impartial, which is not saying you believe in God and how he is, but then treating people totally differently based on what they can do for you. That's partiality. That's not wisdom. And lastly, it's being sincere, which literally the word is not under judgment. In other words, being sincere means acting according to the law of liberty, where mercy triumphs over judgment. That's what the purity of wisdom looks like. And that's the kind of church that we are asking the Lord to shape us into. The ethic of the New Testament has three primary aspects. Costly love, humility, and unity. To be a Christian is to be a person who says what we believe matters right? We must be people of deep convictions, but we must not let our convictions around anything but Christ divide us against the unity that Christ purchased with his own blood. To do that is not to stand with Jesus. It's to go against what he died for, and it's not the wisdom from above. So how can we be Like this community, a church full of people who believe that only believers should be baptized and who believe in infant baptism. How is that possible? How can we be a church full of people who, on the one hand, some believe that the Holy Spirit's miraculous gifts stopped 2,000 years ago, and some believe they have not, and they continue to this day? How can we be a church full of Republicans and Democrats, or a church full of amillennialists, premillennialists, postmillennialists, and I don't care? what that word means, people, right? That is this room. One of those categories, or more than one, is represented in just these seats. How are we going to do this? By living in the meekness of wisdom from above. 
Strong convictions, good, harness them. Paul says, let each one be convinced in his own mind. Convictions are wildly important. We need to be searching scripture prayerfully and understanding the nuances of our faith. You have a responsibility in Christ to dive deep into what you believe and why. So have your convictions and then let's harness that strength in the wisdom from above and channel it to good to seek peace, righteousness. And I can't give you a deeper application than that. I can't really be more specific. Wisdom isn't defined and I can't give you three steps to being a peaceable Christian or church. We are going to have to rely on the Holy Spirit step by step. There's no greater joy in the Christian life than leaning on Jesus with every step. There's no greater joy and pleasure, sincerely, no deeper fellowship than living in such a way together that we go, the only thing holding this up is Christ. Then we're all walking proof, a walking encouragement to every other Christian we meet that Jesus is alive and active, and loves his church. Notice that James doesn't say the wisdom that comes from above is first correct, then accurate, then divisive, then party-spirited, and then self-congratulatory. It's first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Verse 18, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So if you want a harvest of corn, what do you do? Put a corn kernel an inch deep in some soil, roughly about three to four inches apart from the other ones, weight, water, etc. Now, if we're followers of Jesus and we've got strong convictions about all sorts of important doctrines, This isn't hypothetical for us. We're talking baptism and like really important stuff here, right? What is the harvest that we want from those convictions? Is it not righteousness? Isn't the glory of Christ the goal? So how do we get that harvest? We sow seeds in peace. Peacemakers. I spent years of my life with Jesus being angry about the church and about doctrine. Not that I didn't like church. I loved church. I was just reformed and mad. I wanted everyone to believe exactly like I did. And I wanted, them, I wanted to be the one to win them over to my side to see how wrong they were. And I did discover many times over winning arguments feels terrible. Do you ever notice that? You might even be right. But winning an argument at the expense of the person that Christ died for feels wrong. How is that possible? Because a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Earlier in chapter one, James says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So what does? Peace. 
wisdom from above creates peace in us and we live out that peace. We become peacemakers, peace lovers. So lastly, how do we do it? How do you seek peace like that? The Bible often uses war imagery to describe God's relationship to the world. And war imagery is what immediately follows in the next passage that we're going to study together next week. Uh, And that's why the Lord is so often called in the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament, the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies. And in Zechariah chapter 10, the prophet Zechariah records the words of the Lord talking about this day of the Lord. Uh, which is often used, they use military language to talk about. So here's what it says, Zechariah chapter 10. I didn't write down the verse, but it's there. My anger, says the Lord, is hot against the shepherds and I will punish the leaders for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. Um. In other words, the church is like the war horse of Christ. The fulfillment of that prophecy is not some future Armageddon date where Jesus comes back guns ablazing for everyone who didn't love him. It's the cross. Jesus won the war by losing the battle. By dying on the cross to pay for our sins, the sins of his enemy, Jesus flipped the world upside down. You win by losing. You live by dying. That's why Paul says that the cross is foolishness to the world, but it's the very wisdom of God. Jesus wants us to be like his war horse, not tamed, but strength, controlled, channeled, harnessed for peace. He wants to make us kingdom of this world defying lovers of peace. After all, we were God's enemies. There was no peace between us and the Father. That peace was hard bought and hard won. Real peace comes through death. And Jesus died to redeem us back to the Father and be our peacemaker. And friends, that's how we make peace too. We've got some dying to do, but it's not weakness. We can die to ourselves all day because our life is hid in God with Christ. Because the master himself said, whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And you don't have to muster this up all by yourself. This isn't the wisdom that comes from within. It's the wisdom that comes from above. I was praying right before the service, asking the Lord to not burden you through me misspeaking about the text or misemphasizing. Please don't hear this as a new thing you have to do for Jesus. This is something we receive. The wisdom from above. You just have to ask and then lace up your shoes. 
If any of you lacks wisdom, let them ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I am uh, convicted of my own harshness, um, the ways that I don't seek peace and make peace, the ways that I don't live out the wisdom from above that you died to give me. And Lord, I think that your spirit is convicting others, not just me. We can all confess that. But Lord, I am more comforted and I pray that we all are together more comforted in that conviction. Because what, you're not the holdout. (laughs) You went as far as anyone could possibly go to show your love. And now you continue to give us gifts of wisdom when we ask. And you don't chide us. You don't dredge up our sins to make us feel bad. You just give more wisdom. You just give more grace. It's like drinking from a fire hydrant, Lord. We praise you for your grace. We praise you for your mercy and your generosity. Now give us wisdom and peace. For Christ's sake, amen.